Well, my goodness, have I missed y'all. Let me just take this all in. Oh, so please be seated. It's so wonderful to see all of you. I have missed you through the summer months. Some of you I see on a regular basis, but not all of you. And so it's so fun to be back at it. And beloved, I'm so sorry that I had to miss last week, but I'm so grateful I'm here today. Although honestly, this text is so difficult, I was really hoping Donna would get it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but since she didn't, I'm going to bring us a word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, look down upon your daughters. Look down with favor upon this precious group of women who are gathered, Lord, to hear from you. We have come to this place because we need a fresh word. And Father, we are not interested in what any of us have to say or what we think. We want to hear from you today. So Father, would you speak? Would you speak? By your spirit, through your word, would you speak to your daughters? We are leaning in close that we might catch every word that you have for us today. And Father, it is my prayer that you would hide me behind the cross. That you would increase and I would decrease. But Father, I am asking for a fresh anointing like never before. May fresh fire fall today. When I open my mouth, would you fill it and would you speak to my own heart and would you speak through me this morning as these precious beloved women have gathered here to study your word. Father, we invite your presence. Come and settle in. You are the welcome guest here. Lord Jesus, how we love you. Thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Beloved, I'm so sorry I was not able to be with you last week. Mr. Stockdale and I had an opportunity to go with the Bellevue team out to um, Vancouver, Washington to work with the church plant there. And we just had a glorious time. For one thing, in the morning it was only 59 degrees and you needed to put a jacket on. And we kept watching the temperatures here as y'all were just sweltering in this heat. Uh, but we had just had a wonderful, wonderful time. I was so sorry that it conflicted, however, with our very first day of women's ministry. I don't take these, make these decisions lightly because I'm obviously very committed to teaching in women's ministry. I've been doing it since 1990. And actually before that, when we were still downtown, and I love what happens when God's women get together to study God's Word. I love it. I love it. It's just a part of my life. It's defined my life. And it's great privilege and honor, so I don't take it lightly when I can't be here, but the opportunity was priceless to go and encourage some church planners that are out there in a very hard place, in a very hard place of our country that is gospel hardened as they are surrendered to the work there. Now, several years ago, I also missed the very first women's ministry. I had an opportunity to Mr. Stockdale and I did to go uh, to Guadalajara with a Bellevue team. And while we were down there, I decided that I would make a little video that they could show first thing in women's ministry while I was not here to bring greetings to you. So during lunch, I asked Craig if he would go out in the plaza with me and film just a little clip on his iPhone. And so we started into it and I hardly got into it and I was fumbling around words and I said, hold it, hold it, let's try that again. So we did it again and this time I got words all tangled up and I said okay that's not going to work and I said this time third try do not stop videoing for any reason 
I am telling you, the more I do this, the worse it's going to get. So whatever comes out is what I'm sending off, and I don't want you to stop it. So Craig very carefully was holding his phone up right in front of his face. And he could see what was happening, but I could not. And so let me just show you this video from several years ago, if they can show that real quick. And I greet you in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I am so sorry that I'm not able to be with you on our launch of our new Bible study in the book of Hebrews. But God has called Craig and I to come and to serve here in Guadalajara, Mexico for this week. We've been able to teach and to train. We're also going out into the marketplace to share the, the good news of Jesus Christ. So while I'm sorry I cannot be with you, we're just grateful to be a part of the things that God is doing down here in Mexico. I send my love and I will look forward to seeing you next week. I pray God's blessings as you study the Word of God and uh, learn more and more about Hebrews. God bless you. I decided I would show you that as so we could have a little laughter because once we get started in the text, there's going to be no more laughter. You know what I'm saying? This is a weighty, weighty text. And so I thought it would be fun to start off with just a little giggle. But anyways, we're about to embark on chapter 38 in our study today. And beloved, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's cringeworthy at best. Genesis 37 ends and Joseph has just been sold off to a traitor and he's been carted off to Egypt. And we would assume chapter 38 would be a continuation of his story. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses inserts a chapter here in the life of Judah that is so painful to read that I cannot even believe it's included in the text. If you know what I mean. Now, you may not be like me, but I like my Bible people to have neat, tidy lives. Anybody else? I don't like to know when they blow it. So let's start in. John Phillips says, the Bible does not shun telling the whole sad truth about human nature. Human nature, as a result of the fall, is raw. Ain't that the truth? Indeed, that God should pick a man like Judah and make him a prince in Israel and then send his own son into the world, not merely from Judah's line, but from the outworking of the very events recorded in this chapter is nothing less than a miracle of grace and all God's daughters said... Amen. Amen. And yet, as we study this, God reminds me, and I shall pass it on to you, that each one of us are a miracle of grace. So we dare not get high and mighty about Judah's sin, but we need to be reminded that we are broken, sinful creatures and that God has redeemed us by his shed blood. The first thing I want you to see is what I call Judah's sons. Look with me as I read 1 through 11, a bit of a long text, but stay with me. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited an, a, a Dulamite whose name was Hera. Now Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her and and she conceived and bore a son, and they, he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son, and named him Onan. She bore still another son, and named him Shelah. And it was at Sherzib 
that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah, or Shelah, grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die, just like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. It appears likely that it was the guilty conscience of Judah that begins to make him restless. He was a part of the plan, the diabolical plan to get rid of Joseph. And as he watches his aging father grieve over the loss of his beloved son, as he watches the grief etch lines of sorrow into his aging face, Judah begins to suffer, we believe, from a guilty conscience. As he imagines the horrors of Joseph's life in his current situation, he can no longer stand the weight of his part in that treacherous ruse. He does what most do when stricken with guilt. He runs, believing erroneously that he can outrun his misdeeds. So Genesis 38.1 says Judah departed from his brothers and he went and visited an Adulamite whose name was Hera. While there, Judah purposely violates God's command and he takes a Canaanite bride. Her name is Bathshua, according to 1 Chronicles 2 verse 3. Her name is not mentioned here. She was a pagan, a member of the sin-cursed race that practiced a religion of utter wickedness. The birth of three sons quickly followed. The fact that she named the last two, I don't know if you picked up on that. The first son was named by Judah. The second and third son she named. So it would appear at this point that Judah has, um, has left his responsibility as the head of the household. And he sort of turned over the raising of the boys to his wife who was teaching them about the terrible pagan religion of the Canaanites. And it seems like these boys take after their mother rather than after Judah. So when the firstborn is of a marriageable age, Judah arranges a marriage with a woman named Tamar. Now John Phillips tells us the um, origin of her name. Her name means palm tree, suggested of beauty, slenderness, grace, and usefulness, fruitfulness. From the rest of the story and from the position God gave that woman in the Messianic line, we conclude that she must have been a woman of high character and noble aspirations despite her pagan background. She seems to have entered into the Messianic hope of which, no doubt, Judah has spoken to her when negotiating the matter of the marriage to his older son. So Ur is exposed to the teaching of the one true God, but he rejects the God of Abraham, Isaac, uh, and, uh, and uh, Jacob out of hand and instead holds fast to his mother's pagan influence. He is so wicked, the Lord took his life. 
Beloved, when they asked his wife what he died of, she would have to say wickedness. So wicked that God took him out. And because Ur died without an heir, what happens next was a common practice. You studied this in your study this week. It was known as a, a Leverite marriage. The Bible uh, teaches, and uh, this was added in Genesis, excuse me, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It became part of the law. But I looked up on Got Questions, and this is what that website said about this practice. In ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. A widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendants of the dead husbands, of the dead husband, rather. It served a very practical purpose to ensure the ongoing of the family name. Now, aren't we glad we're not under that right now? Yes, yes. I don't care who your family is. It's just best This is not our culture or custom. So he instructs his second son, a a man named Onan, to take Tamar as his wife and perform his duty as a brother-in-law to Tamar. But as the scripture says that he delighted, he was thrilled to get to have sex with his uh, sister-in-law. Creepy, I know. But (laughs) he refused to impregnate her. So he was not a man of honor. He was self-centered self-indulgent. He was so wicked, perhaps even more so than his older brother, and God took his life also. Again, what an obituary. When people ask why her second husband died, the answer is wickedness. Wickedness. Now, several months ago, uh, when it's been actually over a year now, I was in the recovery of having had chemo. I was home with Mr. Stockdale. I was curled up in the easy chair with my feet up, wrapped up in several blankets because I was freezing. And um, the doctor called a prescription in, and Craig said, since you're kind of stable right this moment, I'm going to dash up to Oakland and get that prescription and bring it home for you. And so he left me there all wrapped up, and I said, honey, I'm going to be sitting right here all here in my covers when you get back so he leaves and he's gone for about 30 minutes and uh, uh, so while he is gone and I'm sitting in my chair watching some tv and um, I you know I live out in the country and I looked and across by my baseboard across the room was a mouse yes that's the way I feel about it as well I do not snakes and mice are in the category I wish they'd all die today. I mean, seriously, that's how I feel about it. A slow, miserable death. That's what I feel. And so this little mouse, and he darted across in front of me, and I did what I always do, and that is scream. And I screamed so loud, and I'm not kidding here, the little mouse stopped (laughs) and looked over his shoulder at me. I mean, he made eye contact with me. And I was just, whoo! So he ran towards my desk. Now, I had set my purse down by my desk, uh, and he uh, ran and got under my purse. Now he's touching my stuff. (sighs) 
so for about the next 20 minutes, the little mouse would peep his head out from under my purse and I would scream and he would draw back. And this went on over and over again. Him peeping out, me screaming. Him peeping out, me screaming. Him peeping out. I mean, this, this went on until I was nearly hoarse. Finally, after about 20 minutes of this, he dashes from there into our bedroom. And now I'm thinking, I'm never sleeping in there again. So Mr. Stockdale finally gets in, and he can tell I'm distressed about something. And he said, what happened while I was gone? And I said, babe, there's a mouse. And he said, oh, no, because he, he knows how that goes with me. And so I said, here's the deal. He ran into our bedroom. And I said, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight until you go in there and you've got to find that mouse and you've got to rid this house of that mouse. Do you understand? You understand what I'm saying? Yes, he did understand. So he goes into the bedroom. He's moving stuff around, looking, looking, looking. So we have a bedroom, uh, excuse me, a bathroom right off our bedroom. I hear him go in there and close the door and I thought, he has found the mouse. He's trapped him in the bathroom. And so what happens next is Mr. Stockdale is in there throwing things and <laughs> slamming things and then beating things. And this goes on for several minutes. But when he comes back out, he's holding the mouse by his tail. And he said, baby, don't worry. God just called him home. <clears throat> God struck two young men down in their prime because of their wickedness. They had embraced the culture and the religious activity of the Canaanite world. And even though Judah was their father, he was not living the kind of life that seemed to have influence on his sons and they grew into young men so wicked and so vile that God cut them down just like that. And so now Judah is very, very concerned. He has one son left. And he knows that he is to give that son over to Tamar. Now, we don't think he knows all these things that have been going on in the background. All he knows is two sons are dead and one son remains. And he thinks to himself, I'm afraid to give her this boy because surely he'll die too. And so he comes up with a reasonable line and he says, remain a widow in your father's house until uh, Sheila grows up. So he has told her that he is promising him to her to fulfill the role so that the first son born, the first one, would be an heir of the deceased brother. And then he will uh, uh, remain married to Tamar. But in reality, he never intends to fulfill the promise. The second thing I want you to see, or excuse me, I've, I've jumped ahead of myself. Uh, he had this one son, and he tells her to return to her home and wait, and that's what she does, expecting Judah to fulfill his promise that when the time comes for him of marriaging a marriageable age, that he will bring uh, Sheila to her to take uh, as his wife. 
now then I want you to see Judah's sin. And it gets dicier and dicier. Look in verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ending, Judah went up to the sheep shears at Timnah. And he and his friend Hera, the Adulamite. Now I just want to say that the friend Hera appears three times in this story. And beloved, it appears that he is the unbeliever that is dragging Judah down. It appears he is the one that is feeding uh, Judah information that he wants to hear. Perhaps he's even the one that got him linked up with this girl to marry her. He is not a good friend. And beloved, many of you are raising children and many of you have grandchildren. And we all know that one child, it just takes one child to lift our children up and cause them to uh, be uh, uh, willing to walk in godliness and truth. It only takes one to tear them down. So I would encourage you to claim scripture and pray for their friends. That God would surround your husband, your children, your grandchildren, your friends with godly people. And I would encourage all of you to get you a tribe. A tribe of people who exhort you and encourage you and bless you and build you up in the faith. That is one of the reasons I love women's ministry. And I've been known to sit here and visit sometimes till 5.30 in the afternoon. Because I want to get my fill of spending time with women that I love. Women that I share a heart with. Women who exhort me and urge me on in the faith. Women who can recognize when I'm having a rough day and know how to come along beside me and link arms with me and drag me along until I can get my bearings back. I want to be around godly women. And women's ministry has always been the place for me to engage with godly women. Now then, let me get back to the scripture. Uh, So, make sure you're building strong relationships with strong godly women. Okay, John Phillips says this. First, he, that is Hera, was Judah's, Judah's acquaintance. Then he became Judah's associate. And he ended up being Judah's accomplice. Be careful who you make friends with. Not every friend that crosses your path, not every person that crosses your path has been put there by the Lord. Sometimes the enemy introduces someone to bring discord into your group. So be careful, beloved, who your intimate circle is and find strong women of faith. And spend as much time with them as you possibly can. And so she finds out that is... um, Tamar finds out that her father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, John MacArthur said sheep shearing was frequently associated with festivity and licentious behavior characteristic of pagan fertility cult 
practices. And so what happens next leaves us wondering what in the world is going on. So it's told to Tamar, verse 13, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, set in the gateway of Enum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and that she had not been given him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law that sucked all the oxygen out of this room. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's head, he didn't find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where's the temple prostitute who was here by the road at Enum? And they said, well, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, well, there was no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, Judah thinks his secret tryst is safe. Because some random prostitute who can't even be found is who he engaged with. Has no idea that he had been intimate with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Furthermore, he does not know that because of that, Tamar has conceived. So look in verse, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me comment just a little bit more. Let me look down here on, um, at my notes. Um, the next thing I want you to see is what I call Judah's seed. Verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar, she's played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine them and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah remembered them, recognized them, and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Sheila. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, the brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Now we talk for a moment about Judah and his seed. It's incredible that Judah wanted Tamar burned to death. Now typically stoning was the uh, consequence of adultery, but he 
requires a very severe punishment. Perhaps this again is reflective of his guilty conscience. His secret tryst with a temple prostitute must be surely weighing on him. But in his mind, his secret is safe. So he shakes off his, go- his guilt and he it soothes his troubled soul with the knowledge that Tamar, a woman he despises and dislikes, is finally going to be out of his life for good. And he must have been exceedingly grateful that Sheila did not have to fulfill the role to Tamar. As she is apprehended, she's able to produce these things. And there was no getting around it. They were personalized. And with his insignia, there was no getting around it. These things belong to Judah. Now, Judah is not once named in the events that follow after that. It appears he has washed his hands completely of the woman who brought such shame to his family name. He seems unaware and uninterested that one of the sons born to him will stand directly in the messianic line. In Judah's backslidden condition, he cannot believe that God could be a God of such grace as to redeem this situation for his glory. So twins are born to Tamar, but the first one out is a child that they named Perez. And Perez, beloved, is in the direct lineage of King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he is in the lineages uh, lineages mentioned in the book of Ruth as well because he is uh, 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 six generations, I believe, before Boaz who fulfilled the same marriage requirement to Ruth to restore her husband's estate. So make no mistake, Tamar and Judah have sinned in their immoral union, but God sovereignly worked through their sinfulness to bring about the Lord Jesus Christ through their bloodline. Ladies, let that sit on your soul for a moment. We read this story and we think it is dreadful, dreadful, and it is. But the truth of the matter that this passage reminds us of who God is. Iva May, who has written the chronological Bible study that many of you have participated in, she has an expression that life outside the garden is messy. And it is. We're in a broken world and we are a broken people. And so draw encouragement that God is able to redeem the worst of Judah's life and ultimately use it for his glory. The Messiah is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, having descended through Judah through Perez. The principal theme of this chapter, as I tie this all together, is divine providence, is the sovereignty of God at work. That is, God is at work bringing about his purpose and his plans through man without violating his free will. I cannot explain this to you. I cannot unravel this theological knot, but I am telling you, I am resting in the sovereignty of God. God. I don't have to be able to explain it to appropriate it. Can't explain how electricity works either. I just know when it's dark in my house, I flip a switch and the light comes on. I can't tell you how electricity works, but I sure enjoy it when it does. I can't tell you how sovereignty works, but it is a profound 
truth, beloved. It is profound truth that you and I can learn to rest in. In the story we just studied, God was at work providentially assuring the fulfillment of his promise to provide a Messiah through the descendants of Judah, despite all of the mess that accompanied it. God can accomplish his purposes without man's cooperation. He can work in the life of unbelievers. And he can work through the life of his children, even in a season of disobedience. Ideally, God's sovereign power and all wise and loving purposes are accomplished best through obedience, through obedient servants. But when his children go their own way, God's infinite power is still able to perform that which he has determined to do. The scripture says his will will not be thwarted. That is, you and I cannot mess up so badly that God cannot restore and redeem. Just think about that for a while. Listen, that's the God we serve. Praise the Lord. That's the God we love. And listen to me, that's the God who loves us even in our messes. We look at this story of Judah and we're thinking, he killed those two young men. And we wonder why he didn't strike Judah dead as well. Because God is at work. And he is able to redeem to the uttermost Now, the Apostle Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more. Praise God for that. But listen to me. This does not give us license to be casual about sin. And a story like this that seems to end well, even though it's wretched, might possibly cause some of us to believe that we can live any way we want and God can still work through that. Well, in reality, God will do what God will do. But you and I as believers, we are not to be casting ourselves upon his grace every day. We're to learn to live, excuse me, on his mercy We're to live in his grace. When you and I sin and we ask for forgiveness, he is merciful. Praise God. He will cleanse us and restore us. And he's good. But beloved, you and I should be seeking to walk in personal holiness and practical righteousness so that those around us might be impacted and influenced for godliness. We ought to determine we are going to run well and finish strong. And on those times when we sin and blow it, we go to the Lord and we trust in his sovereignty and his providential care and his love for us. But we do not dare become casual about sin. It is intended to give us comfort that God is in control. Such knowledge should cause us to be all the more diligent to walk in truth. We read a story like this and it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. We rejoice that God's good and he can work even through sinful behavior. He can override it in order 
to fulfill his purpose and plan. But beloved, that does not give us the right to operate any way we want to. We are called to be separate, to be holy, to be image bearers of God. We are called to walk in righteousness and truth. We are called to be different from this lost world. To bring honor and glory to him. And listen to me, one day, one glorious day. Either through the rapture of the church or through the doorway of death, God is going to take us home. And one day, beloved, one day, one glorious, glorious day, we will all be gathered home. From every tongue and every tribe and every people, we are headed home. This is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. The world is getting dark every day, darker and darker and darker and darker. May God's people rise up and be the bride without spot and wrinkle, ready to hear the trumpet. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, thank you for including the story of Judah. Although, Lord, it has been one that is hard to study out. But thank you, Lord. Thank you that you remind us through Judah's story that even when we are sinful, you remain sinless because you cannot deny yourself. And you are able to take the messes that we make and turn them in to miracles for your kingdom. Lord, give us kingdom mindset that we might walk in your way, that we might glorify you, and that we might hear, well done. Lord, we are anxious to get home where we belong. In Jesus' name, amen.